1: Good morning. Welcome to the show. It's, of course, uh, Thursday, second best day of the week as we get ready to wrap up the week, of course, uh, as we kind of get things going. So last night was the big, uh, you know, big speech by President Biden talking about, hey, America's back and really kind of laying out this idea of a blue collar vision of America. Right. And I find that interesting because the one thing that that, you know, really kind of Americans don't want is blue collar labor. Um, And that's easy to see if you take a look at manufacturing indexes. Now, this has been one of the ongoing problems really since Obama took office back in 2009 has been a lack of an ability. and We've talked about this for years is that manufacturers have a very, very hard time hiring people to come work in manufacturing blue collar type jobs. And the reason is, is because a. we've kind of, you know, vi- you know, villainized this idea of blue collar labor, you know, being a plumber, an electrician, a construction worker. Those used to be very honorable jobs back in the 60s and the 70s. And <clears throat> there was absolutely nothing wrong with that. If you said, hey, I'm a plumber, everybody's like, hey, that's that's a great job. And, uh, you know, today we say, you know, God's a plumber, man. I don't want my daughter dating a plumber. (laughs) So, you know, we need doctors and lawyers and and those type of things. So it's an interesting idea, kind of a throwback to an old America that really isn't what Americans want anymore. So, you know, this idea of more unionization, et cetera. Just recently Amazon tried to, uh, there was a a, a warehouse in, I think, Georgia that was trying to, to unionize under Amazon and that process failed. So again, there, it's kind of an interesting idea is that, you know, we're kind of throw out this blue collar vision of, of putting people back to work in these type of blue collar jobs, et cetera. But at the same time, we're going to supply tremendously more incentive not to work. And this brings up an interesting point, right? Because one thing that uh, Biden talked about last night was getting the $15 an hour minimum wage passed. The one group of people that are most victimized by a $15 minimum wage are those that are actually in the bottom earning income tier. And the reason is because, excuse me, because one of the reasons is that once you raise wages to $15 an hour um, and mandate that, now all of a sudden you're going to start requiring people with higher degrees of education, et cetera, to, to fill those jobs. So the people that wind up losing out on those jobs are the very people that you're trying to help with a $15 hour minimum wage. I've got an article coming out on this here just recently uh, in, in the next couple of weeks. Um, but the other side of this is also is that by when you start raising minimum wages, you raise the cost of labor across the board, which pushes companies that are trying to protect profit margins more into automation, uh, more into streamlining operations, increases in productivity, which actually winds up hurting those very people again that you're trying to help. As we talked about before, your minimum wage is zero. You bring to the table what your talents and skills and work ethic are, and that's what determines your minimum wage ultimately. So this idea of creating a minimum wage, it sounds great in theory. It has a lot of negative throwbacks when you try to apply that across the entire country. Plus, there's a lot of companies that are already paying well in excess of minimum wage. In fact, if you take a look at the recent manufacturing reports that just came out, if you read the comments of the manufacturers in these manufacturing reports, they say, hey, we pay $14, 15 $16 an hour. We can't get anybody to come take our jobs because they're getting $400 extra a week to sit at home. And so that is a disincentive to go to work and provide productivity. So this idea of expansion of more child tar- child tax credits, etc., as we discussed yesterday on the show, you know, economics are going to very quickly erase any benefit of additional debt-funded spending because the pro- the cost of child care, etc., will go immediately higher once everybody knows that hey, oh, the government's giving people support for child care and and stay-at-home care and those type of things. Well, I'll raise my prices because now everybody has extra money to spend. So very quickly, that inflationary pressure takes away any benefits that you give, putting those people right back into the position that they were before. What, what you need to create stronger economic growth that is sustainable is to create the incentives that create productivity, incent people to go to work, not incent people to stay at home. So it's a very interesting idea. The whole speech was focused around this idea of giving more people more work. We're going to help uh, more money. We're going to help families by giving them more money. But actually, you wind up hurting families over time by just giving them money. How you help families ultimately is to give them opportunity and to help them create productivity. Because in any economic environment, production is first before you get to the consumption now when you get into an economic environment where an economy is driven 70 percent by consumption that means that we have to produce first to create the consumption that drives 70 percent of the economy that's just the way the economic cycle works the way we're doing it now is completely backwards which is why we don't continue to actually create better outcomes for the bottom 80% of Americans. Okay, to the markets real quick. We got a lot of stuff to get into today, a lot of stuff to unpack. Um, Michael Lee Wood's joining me this morning. We'll get into the Fed as well. The Fed making their announcement yesterday. No real big surprise yesterday, but we'll talk about what the Fed didn't say. And more importantly, how <laughs> Jerome Powell kind of fumbled a lot of the questions yesterday that were asked. So we'll get into that. But very quickly with the markets, um, we're gonna have, uh, we talked yesterday, we said, hey, this market's been just consolidating here over the last you know couple of weeks. And that our money flow buy signal was flattening out here with money flows positive now that's that as we've been saying that suggests there's no really not a lot of downside here to the market that's really been the case the market's just gone nowhere for about three days now Now, after last night's earnings uh, from Apple and Facebook, of course, those had some really big numbers. Those looked really good. Um, Those stocks are going to be opening up this morning. Since those are two of the major players kind of on the market cap weighted basis of the S&P, that's going to push the whole S&P up and the Nasdaq up this morning. Um, But that's that's going to flip this money flow indicator back to a buy so we're going to break out to a new high today that's going to flip this indicator back to a buy that suggests that probably we've got two to three weeks of potential upside here so right here around 41.90 on the on the on the on the S&P somewhere around this range um, we're likely going to kind of get a push up to maybe 42.50 maybe 4300 Tom Strat over at uh, Tom Lee over at Fundstrat says 4400 by June Uh, that may be a little bit high here I don't think there's that much upside here to the markets Uh, just because of a variety of fundamental and economic reasons and we're getting through the majority of the earnings season next week so i I don't know if there's a tremendous amount of upside here but there is certainly some upside here on on this kind of breakout maybe another one to two percent again you know is it something you want to try to buy heavily into on this signal this is not a great buy signal here it's 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 coming from at a higher level than normally it's low so it's turning up early and it's also kind of late in the And as we've talked about and the weekly buy signal is getting fairly extended as well so again probably not a real strong buy signal here but there is some definitely some upside and really no reason to get overly concerned or overly uh worried about the markets where they are currently so um keep a watch on that and we'll keep you up to date on it and read this weekend's newsletter we'll get more into that this weekend realinvestmentadvice.com sign up for the newsletter there by clicking the newsletter link stick around be right back with michael Leewitz. don't go away oh.
0: You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Didn't get enough last Lunch & Learn? We're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual Lunch & Learn with Medicare on the menu. Thursday, May 6th at noon. We'll sink our teeth into the alphabet soup of Medicare, parts A, B, and D. Understanding sign-up periods, benefits, and how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties. It's a second helping edition of our Lunch & Learn on Medicare, Thursday, May 6th. Register now at Real InvestmentAdvice.com. No masks required. The Real Investment Show. Well,
1: and welcome back to the show this morning, 617. Uh, Michael Leibowitz joining me this morning. We're being socially distant because of the whole COVID, uh, you know, requirements. <laughs> Dude, this is a meeting this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I thought it was kind of funny last night uh, if you if you watched the uh, you know Joe Biden's speech and if you looked at the gallery, um, there was only a couple hundred people in the gallery, and this was intentionally done for COVID reasons. My question though is, is that every congressman and senator, justice, etc., have all been vaccinated, so why are we still doing social distancing? <laughs>
2: it's for show.
1: I, I guess so i was like gonna, what's the point of the vaccine uh, I, I love the whole cdc thing right the other day that says hey if you've gotten vaccinated you can go outside with a mask hey guess what everybody's been doing that already <laughs> so, but i'm not sure what's the point of the vaccine if you can't get with other people i don't get it i'm so confused anyway uh hi mike good morning Hey, good morning. Good morning. Uh, uh, so, a couple of things to get into this morning. Uh, we, uh, You and I were kind of talking about this a bit yesterday. Um, you know, the Federal Reserve had their two-day meeting yesterday. Uh, no real surprise, uh, really, coming out of the meeting. I mean, really expect them to say anything. The only kind of... You know, kind of thing that maybe everybody was looking for is maybe some hint that they may start, you know, talking about or at least launching some trial balloons about potentially tapering, but not even really that. Uh, They did make the comment that the economy was strong, uh, but employment, you know, still not, you know, still not back to full employment yet. What does that mean? Um, You know, there is no real kind of set standard for what, you know, full employment used to be somewhere around 5%. Now we dropped it to 3%. I guess we could go to 0% to have full employment. Uh, in order to support keep doing more monetary interventions. But really, no no talk about tapering, um, you know, at all. So, um, you know, this is kind of, um, you know, foot to the pedal for the markets,
2: I guess. Right. I mean, it went exactly as script, exactly as – but not, not just us, as we expected it, but I think everyone expected nothing, a nothing burger. The Fed statement changed a few words, you know, as we thought that they would, you know, basically – They use the same statement from every six weeks and then they they revise it. That's why I'm wearing my favorite shirt from Brent, Fed Grammar (laughs) Matters, because we're really watching grammar and how they use their words. And basically what they did was they said the economy, the economic recovery is progressing nicely, which has been obvious. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the extent of what the statement said. Uh, Powell hint, did not hint at all about tapering again, you know, and he, you know, he was asked the question, are you even thinking about thinking about tapering? And he couldn't have said it more bluntly. He said no. Right. Uh, That said, I think this meeting could be the watershed meeting Mm -hmm. because I don't think that is necessarily the way that all the Fed members feel. Powell gets to drive the Fed statement, and he does the press conference afterwards. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we hear officially from the Fed is what Powell wants to be out there. But starting on a today or tomorrow, the Fed gets out of their blackout period, they're going to speak their mind. Mm -hmm. And we've already seen inklings of some of the Fed speakers talking about taper. And I think we're going to get a lot more of that in speeches over the coming Weeks. And, I, you know, I, there's there's another pressing issue that's happened over the last since the last meeting, and that's food prices. If you look at at the agricultural prices on the commodity exchanges, some of them are up 20, 25 percent like corn, oats, wheat. Mm-hmm. You know, those are key products that go into things we buy every day. And one of the things the Fed has been vocal about, and some Fed members have been very vocal about, Neil Cash carries one, is the plight of the poor and how the poor have suffered a lot more than the rich during this crisis. Not surprising when the Fed does what they do. Mm-hmm. They, they do everything to help the rich and hurt the poor. Inflation is not good for the poor. Stock Booming stock prices is great for the rich. That's, that's the Fed's M.O., but they, maybe they have a little guilt. Who knows what's going on there? Um, but they are going to start seeing food prices ratcheting up highly. And when that's 25%, 35% of what poor people spend Mm -hmm. of their their income, it's going to become a bigger and bigger problem. So I think we're going to see Fed speakers over the coming days, weeks, and then at the Fed minutes. The Fed minutes from the meeting will come out, I think it's May 19th. Mm -hmm. That's when we'll get the full quotes of what people actually said at the meeting. So I think this idea of taper is now sort of on the table it's not it will not happen until powell's okay with it but trial balloon where you know there's gonna be a lot of trial balloons coming to the forefront in the next well, few weeks and let's also
1: remember that you know when the fed is is making a public statement particularly during a uh a, you know a, a press or following a fed meeting you know what the fed what jerome powell says then you know are you thinking of even thinking about potentially thinking about tapering no um that's not necessarily a true answer either he's saying what is also necessary to keep the asset market supported and and keep things kind of stable right um it's it's the stability of instability which is a, a big issue for the fed and we've written articles on this before is that what the fed depends upon more than anything else is that nobody pushes the rig the you know the big red button right so right. you know they depend on markets continuing to function normally and not doing anything abnormal in other words nobody goes pushes the big red button on the on the markets because that undermines everything they're doing so if he came out and said yeah we're thinking about tapering maybe you know it's, it's immediately as soon as those words come out of his mouth even if he was going to say after that in five years. The markets would already sell off because it right. was, you know, the market, everybody's keyed so quickly now to to every little single word that comes out. They've got to be very careful what they said now. But that brings us up to a point, though, during the actual presser, he was asked a couple of questions, uh, you know, about, you know, you know about who, what they're doing and, you know, concerns about market valuations, et cetera. And he kind of really fumbled those answers to a great degree.
2: Yeah, there were two questions at the very end. I thought one of them was brilliant. The guy earlier, Powell had talked about house prices and how they're up a lot since before the crisis. Right. Right. They've done really well. And we all know this. Right. And he said it's due to a lack of supply, low interest rates are helping and then certainly the economic recovery. But he he basically he basically said he didn't say they're in a bubble, but he said that they are higher. And he thought they were more sustainable now than 2007, 2008. So so the question was well if the housing market doesn't need help and in fact it's doing very well why are you still buying mortgage backed securities So remember the Fed buys 80 billion of US treasuries and 40 billion US mor- uh, mortgages from Fannie Freddie Ginny mm-hmm. every month and he completely stumbled the answer he goes well they're not really mortgages they they're more they're part of the Treasury system and the internal financing, and he 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 was kind of going around in circles, <laughs> and it didn't make sense. He right. could have said, you know, what they could be doing is buying all treasuries and not mortgages, right. or, or actually tapering. Right. If 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 a sector doesn't need help, why are you helping it? And they're they're what they're doing again is they're pricing both the millennials and the poor people out of the housing market. Right. That's what's happened with lower mortgage rates, thanks to the Fed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Fed kind of has these two hats on one hat says we got to worry about financial stability in the economy. And one hat, one recent hat is that we care a lot about the poor people. But everything they do is not for the poor people. It's for the you know, it mm-hmm. benefits the wealthy and they don't seem to understand the juxtaposition of what they're doing versus what they want to do. And, and to be honest, I'm not sure what they want to do. They can do. They don't have the power. Right. That's more on the fiscal side, if you want. Um, But they insist, they continue to insist by their actions that markets are all that matter to them. Right. That low yields and high stock prices are what's going to get us through COVID. Right.
1: Well, but but this, but, but ironically, though, this has been the same stance for the last decade, right? They've, you know, right. we've had consistent rounds of QE. We've had near zero interest rates for the majority of the last decade. And we were never able to sustain more than about 2 percent growth. Yeah, we would get little bumps of economic activity to three or four or even five, even six percent that would last for a quarter or two. And then we drop right back down into 2 percent growth rates. Um, so yeah, we've had this booming stock market. Now the top ninety, uh, the top ten percent of income earners own ninety percent of the stock market. Exactly to your point, the very things that they do benefit the wealthy. Buying MBS securities has been great, and yes, the housing prices are soaring. But the only people buying houses are those with almost perfect credit and their higher end homes. So you know the the poor people that buy the one hundred fifty thousand dollar home, there's been virtually no activity. In that area because they're being priced out they can't simply can't afford it we've got 53 percent of millennials moving back in with parents <laughs> so right, right. you know they're, they're something you know something doesn't equate and this is why you have so many you know young people wanting to vote for socialism because they think capitalism is broken but it's not right. capitalism is broken it's corporatism and, it, and it's the fed activity
2: they want they want a robin hood fed Right. They want some other Fed, some other agency that does the exact opposite of what the Fed's doing. Correct. Help the poor at the expense of the rich. And look, I, I you know, I, I don't I, I think what the Fed does is awful and I think a lot of the fiscal policy coming out of government is detrimental. So but I understand where they're coming from because you know, the corporations seem to be winning, the wealthy seem to be winning. Right. And it that's not the way it should be either.
1: Well, so, I mean we just saw this yesterday, right? Apple reports blowout earnings. Which are, which is great, right? Stock's going to be up about two, you know, two or three bucks today. Um, you know, great, right? So they announce these blowout earnings, they're doing fantastic, um, and then they turn around and announce ninety billion dollars worth of stock buybacks, which right. benefit all the insiders of the companies. And this is right. something that you know we continue to complain about is this wealth gap between you know executives okay. and every and workers, and this is a prime benefactor. You know, stock buybacks are a prime benefactor You know, to those insiders. Those are the ones that benefit the most and from stock buybacks. Lance, yeah.
2: Lance, you're missing the most important point. Yes, sir. 10, 11 months ago, whose bonds were the Fed buying? Apple, Apple bonds. <laughs> they were supporting Apple. Right. Because. It, right. Exactly the point. You can't make this stuff up. No.
1: <laughs> That's why people think capitalism is broken. <laughs> because it is broken. It is broken. <laughs> <laughs> All right, quick break. We'll come back. Got some other stuff to get into. Don't go away.
0: Very soon, fish out. Riding down the wall. Very soon, fish out. Let us back to fall. Yeah. in any place, anytime at realinvestmentadvice.com. Didn't get enough last Lunch & Learn? We're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual Lunch & Learn with Medicare on the menu. Thursday, May 6th at noon, we'll sink our teeth into the alphabet soup of Medicare, parts A, B, and D, understanding sign-up periods, benefits, and how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties. It's a second helping edition of our Lunch & Learn on Medicare, Thursday, May 6th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. No masks required. You're listening to The Real Investment Show.
1: Welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Michael Leibowitz, uh joining me. Um, one thing that Mike and I have both been um, delving into a bit lately on our blog post and our newsletter as well is what's been going on with interest rates and the stock market. And, and of course, if you look at the stock market, the, the, general, the general premise from Wall Street is, is that the stock market predicts the economy about six months in advance and you know and there's a there's a reasonable correlation to that going back through history and you know but the problem is is that when you take a look at what the stock market's doing there's many times in history where it becomes detached really from underlying economic growth particularly when you have a lot of artificial things that are going on like we've seen over the last decade so you know if you take a look at 2% economic growth um certainly doesn't suggest that an economy that's grown in total by about three point five trillion dollars since two thousand and nine, um, certainly doesn't support a hundred and almost a two hundred percent increase since uh, two thousand and seven, right? It's just we we've seen just massive increases in asset prices that really don't correlate to the underlying economy, and this is important because historically there's a very high correlation going back to you know the eighteen hundreds between earnings growth, capital appreciation in stocks, and the economy, and not surprisingly, that's where things come from. So Mike and I have really been digging into this a a bit lately. We talked about it in our last weekend's newsletter, which is on the website. And then yesterday, Michael posted a a blog on our website as well, touching on this idea about who's right. You know, interest rates are at historic lows, right? uh, You know, we talk about this all the time. Interest rates are very low right now. Um, That's supporting the housing market and everything else. But uh, lots of comments about interest rates justify how, you know, we can overpay for stocks because interest rates are so low. But who's right? Is it bonds or is it stocks? Um, Mike, you did a big digging yesterday. What did you find out?
2: So there was a scene in Animal House, which we can't even talk about (laughs) because we're both going to get fired and (laughs) taken off the radio. But in this scene, there's a devil and devil and an angel pop up on the guy's shoulders. Devil is saying one thing. Angel is saying a completely opposite thing on what he should do. And as as portfolio managers, investors, wealth managers, there's a devil and an angel on our shoulders too. Stock market is telling us one thing and a bond market is telling us the completely opposite thing. So so what I did was and, and Lance wrote a great article about this earlier right, about a week ago. Yeah. And when I saw the title of his article, I was like, come on, Lance, I was just <laughs> going to write on that. You stole it from it." <laughs> but but we do take different approaches. And, and I think if you read both, you, you know, you get to the same points, but you get there in different ways. I think mine quantifies it a little bit. Uh, more so. So, if you don't mind, I'm going to walk <laughs> through a couple of the charts.
1: Was that that was a, that was kind of a backhanded it wasn't remark? A there was <laughs> no, 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 not at all.
2: It, mine, mine, was just a little more. Mine's just yours, a little, Mine's just better. Mine's <laughs> just better. I'll give you that, Lance. No, no, it, it used a I'm little te- bit. I'm more teasing math. you. Just, just it's all good. So yeah, a let's, l- let's... little more, a si- little more quantitative, less qualitative. <laughs> there you go. Both, okay. but both I think are. To, to understand what we're talking about, I think definitely read both of them, because they both get to the point in different ways. And I think it's a very important point, because these markets are polar opposite of each other. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind, I'm going to share a couple of the graphs to kind of walk you through some of the analysis and what it portends.
1: And this is important, too. And also, uh, just by the way, on Friday, just because Michael wrote his article, I had to one-up him. I've got another article coming out on Friday that goes even more into this. <laughs> <laughs> but but this is important stuff that um, we're talking to because you know there there is a big disconnect between what's happening in the media when the media tells you oh the economy's great um, interest rates you know maybe telling a different story so go ahead mike
2: let me just start with the first graph i think this is essential to understand this is earnings growth and gdp growth and in this article i use a concept called peak earnings growth and peak GDP growth and it's conservative and basically what it does is it uses at each point in time the highest uh, growth in either one so if we're looking at earnings right now we're looking at earnings from Q4 2019 those were the best earnings Mm -hmm. so it kind of smooths out the numbers it gets rid of the anomalies like recessions and you get a better better feel for the trend and I'm showing a graph right now of peak earnings growth to peak GDP growth going back to 1990. And there's a couple things to note. A, they're very correlated. They both, they both kind of move down slowly over time. And their trend lines, you know, I also show their trend lines. And their trend lines are not necessarily parallel, but they both shrink over time. Earnings growth has gone from about 7% to 5%. Uh, GDP growth has gone to about 4% from 7%. And they've widened a little bit, but both trended lower. So that's the first thing to that we need to think about is that earnings growth by default will follow GDP growth. So if we have an estimate on GDP, we have a pretty good estimate on earnings growth. Now margins can change, which will which will affect it in short term periods. But over long term, knowing or having an estimate on GDP growth can certainly help you with earnings growth.
1: Right. And and particularly in this case, right, one thing that could shrink margins, as an example, are higher taxes.
2: Exactly. So then what I said is, well, let's look at the P.E. of the S&P 500. And everyone does the same thing. They look at P.E. and they say, okay, the P.E., let's just say we're looking at I give an example. Let's say we're looking at IBM and the P.E. was always 10 so the price to earnings, someone paid a price of 10 for a dollar, an annual dollar of earnings, right? Uh-huh. All of a sudden it goes to 20. You can make two assumptions, that the price is too high, and that's the assumption everyone makes, or that the earnings are too low. So maybe IBM has a new product that's going to double their earnings next week, right? If that's the case, then the PE is fair at 20, and it will shrink back to 10, which is his, its historical average. Right. So basically, what I did in this chart that I'm showing here, and there's a lot going on in this chart, uh, is I reversed it. I said, well, okay, what if the stock market is right? What does that imply about earnings growth for the next 10 years, right? What do earnings have to grow by to get the P.E. back to its 20-year historical average? And in the graph, I show the earnings which is from the the same exact blue earnings line that I had in the prior graph. And then I have implied earnings. So again, implied earnings are what the market is implying earnings will be. Right now, those earnings are over 7%. Again, earnings have been trending at 5% and trending lower Mm -hmm. for the last 20 plus years. And then last on this graph is a difference or premium or discount. So how much is our implied earnings over, you know, trend earnings? Right. And right now they're 40%. The market thinks earnings are going to be 40% more than trend. So if you think that earnings are going to pick up over the next 10 years by 40%, Your then list. the stock market is fairly priced. Mm-hmm. But as we can see from this graph, the market goes consistently goes through cyclical periods where it's overpriced or underpriced. And it can certainly get more overpriced like it was in the late nineties, but it can also get very underpriced like it was in two thousand eight.
1: Right. And then this is and, so, and and this is you know, part of this is is also too when we come back and we talk about, you know, earnings and valuations. Yes, you know, we're having a big, you know, kind of resurgence in earnings right now because, you know, we just kind of went through this economic shutdown. So we're getting this very short-term burst in, you know, activity in the economy, a lot of stimulus there that's boosting earnings for certain. Um, But what's important to understand is that, you know, that's a near-term anomaly that once we go through this kind of this initial reopening and everybody's kind of back to do to being normal so to speak in terms of daily activity earnings growth is going to start to slow back down to to more normal levels um and then, and then that's the, that's the value of looking at earnings over a period of time so just to, to kind of remove some of these anomalies that occur you know, out of that process, so you can see the longer-term trend, and when we start looking at the fact that earnings are growing at you know five percent or so, you know, over a long period of time, when you start looking, you know, going forward and, and looking at what we're paying on valuations, et cetera, you know, today, um, which you know some of the second, you know, some of the highest valuations we've seen, that certainly suggests that things are going to be a little bit more problematic, you know, as we get you
2: know further down the road here. Right. Right. And let me maybe we'll save bonds for after the break. But let me give a little example. Ford. Ford had great earnings yesterday. Mm-hmm. The stock was down or should be down a few percent today. So why is that? Everything about their earnings was great. Well, because they said that they're going to have to halt production on maybe 50 percent of their cars because they can't source enough chips right now. Right. But if you the price of Ford is based on the next 20, 30 years of earnings earnings will will get felt you know earnings will be affected in the next quarter no doubt mm-hmm. but if you're really looking at 20 years of earnings this is nothing so you know it's completely discounting some really good news because of 2 to 3 months of slower growth which will probably even get made up for in you know when we're looking out 6 months to a year right so from a true investment point of view, Ford should be fine today, should actually be up today. But the market is paying so much attention to what's going to happen over the next two months months, and not nearly enough attention to kind of the broader well, trends market.
1: Well, But, the, but that, that in and of itself is really the issue. Um, if you go back to the 1970s, 80s, 90s, the average holding period for a stock was six years. Today, the average holding period for a stock is less than five months. So really, you know, we've you know, one thing we've done out of all of this is you know, the move to decimalization, the move to online trading, the move to free commissions, all this has led to a market environment where really no we don't invest longer term. What we do is is we're speculating on short-term moves in markets and you know, have forgotten the whole purpose of long-term investing. We'll come back after the break. We'll pick up on what interest rates are telling us specifically about the outcome of markets in the economy over the next couple of years. Be right back after the break with Michael Leibowitz.
0: Listening to the Real Investment Show. Didn't get enough last lunch and learn? We're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual lunch and learn with Medicare on the menu. Thursday, May sixth at noon. We'll sink our teeth into the alphabet soup of Medicare parts A, B, and D. Understanding sign-up periods, benefits, and how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties. It's a second helping edition of our lunch and learn on Medicare. Thursday, May sixth. Register now at Real Investment com. No masks required. The Real Investment Show.
1: And welcome back to this morning. It's 647. Michael Leibowitz joining me this morning, talking a little bit about Markets, economy, kind of what what are interest rates telling us, right? You know, interest rates now at very low levels they have been coming up here recently. Um, people are convinced that, um, you know, we're going to have surging interest rates. And what's interesting is, is that, yes, interest rates have come up, but they're currently around, you know, 1. 1.7, 1. 1.8 percent. Um, yet the stock market's predicting 6 and 7 percent economic growth uh, this year. So really kind of who's right, um, you know, historically speaking, Mike?
2: Right. And let me just backtrack for one second on equities to make sure I got the point across that equities think that earnings growth will be 2 percent higher from the peak levels of 2019. I'm not going from the lows of 2020. Mm-hmm. Remember, I use that concept of peak earnings. Right. So so it's a very conservative measure. And we're talking about, two, you know, growing an extra 2 percent a year from a level that we're not even at yet. So it's potentially even a little bit more than that. So we've told you what the angel think. Let's tell you what the devil thinks. And the devil, as they say, is in the details. <laughs> uh, but so, of course,
1: And in this case, the angel being in stocks and, of course, uh, bonds being the
2: devil. That's the
1: uh, – because, you know, again, everybody kind of
2: hates bonds, right? <laughs> right, right. And in the article, we have a graph of – It shows the 10-year yield versus the 10-year average GDP growth rate. And it's remarkable how well correlated they are. It's, for all you statistics geeks, it's got an R-squared of 0.87. means it's very significant, the correlation. So, you know, we can simply look at the 10-year yield right now at Mm -hmm. 165-ish, call one and three quarters. That's what the market is predicting for the next 10 years. Well,
1: that's what the interest rate market is predicting for the next 10 years.
2: Right. Right. I'm sorry. The bond market is predicting that. And that is, you know, in the article, there's a trend line and it is right on the trend line. So, so, you know, on one hand, we got a bond market that has been deadly accurate for the last 30 years. That's telling you growth is going to be where it's been trending. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not this. This may seem crazy that that growth is only going to be. 1.6, 1.7, 1.6, 1.7, that's the Fed's long term estimate. They're at 1.8, 1.9. If you look at productivity growth uh, demographics, you put them together, you come up with similar levels in the mid to upper 1%. So, you know, you know, we have these very competing views of what's going to happen over the next 10 years. And I think the markets are clouded by what's going on today. This, I mean, Ford is a great example. The market is so focused on the fact that they can't produce as many cars as they want over the next two months and losing sight of the big, broad macro trends.
1: Right. And I think this is important because and this is and this is after I read your article and, and to the point you're making here is why I wrote an article for Friday to really kind of follow up on this which is to talk about why, historically, the bond market is such a better predictor of, of the economy and what's going to happen over time versus the stock market. And the reason is, is really not that surprising. If I'm a lender, and, and this is what we tend to forget, you know, we say, oh, I'm an investor, right? So I bought bonds. Um, I'm investing in the bond market. You're not investing in the bond market. You're loaning money. And that's what a bond is. You're loaning money to a company. You're loaning money to Apple. You're loaning money to IBM. You're loaning money to ExxonMobil. You're loaning money to the, the U.S. government if you're buying a treasury. Um, you know, you're loaning money. And the bond market is very sensitive to economic risk, right? So, because when I issue out a bond, I'm issuing it out at a specific rate. So, I'm going to loan... So, let's use an example here. Mike comes to me. He says, hey, I'm going to start a business and I want to borrow some money from you uh, for 10 years. And so, we look at his business and we evaluate it and we say, okay, look, Mike, um, I'm going to loan you money at 5% for the next year. Now, why why 5% for the next 10 years? Where did that number come from? Well, I'm evaluating several things with Mike. I'm evaluating one, his ability to repay me. How, how successful do I think his business will be? And can he repay that money back to me? And, you know, with the current interest rate environment at two, say, just make things easy, I'm charging Mike a premium because there's risk to his business. So I'm building in a bit of risk. If I didn't want any risk at all with my money, I'd loan it to the government at two percent. Versus Mike, I'm going to loan it to him at, at five, a 3% premium, because there's risk. Uh, there's a risk he might not pay me back. There's risk of, of, of you know changes to the economic environment. But also, I want to make sure that the money I'm loaning to Mike is also accounting for inflation. It's accounting for potential economic growth. And it's accounting for other opportunities. I can loan money to Mike at 5%, but I could also invest that money somewhere else at a higher rate. So I'm taking on opportunity costs. And the reason that this is so important is that as a as a lender, I don't get to go back to Mike next year and go, Mike, I'm changing my mind here. I think I need 6%, right? Or Mike did really good. Say, okay, I'm going to lower your rate to 4%. i am fixed in at 10 years at 5%. So I don't get to change that rate. So I've got to calculate all these things up front. I've got to make good estimates about what I think is inflation is going to be, economic growth is going to be, all these different factors. And I've got to build that into the loan rate that I'm making to Mike. And and this is why the bond market historically is such a better predictor about economic growth and what happens to the economy is because all those factors are being pulled into the current interest rate environment. Versus the stock market, where it's a speculative risk, and as we see with, like Mike was talking about with Ford, where you know looking at a one-time anomaly of this chip shortage that's impacting the stock price, right? So we're making these adjustments on a on a moment by moment basis, saying, "Well, Mike, I like you today, but I don't like you tomorrow, so I'm taking my money back." <laughs> you right. know, that's but, not you know that's and, and that's why the stock market is not as good of a predictor long term. Now, in the short term. Probably three months to six months, stock market's a fairly good predictor. Long term, right. it's the bond market you want to pay attention to.
2: Right. And Lance, there's a, there's another side to that story. Mike Incorporated also has to think about the rate that you're going to charge. Right. If Mike Incorporated is really GDP Incorporated, and I only think that GDP growth or my earnings growth is only going to be 3%, mm-hmm. I can't pay you 5%. That's right. So 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 both the supply and demand for bonds except for the US Treasury because they're <laughs> indifferent. Right yeah, right. Right because they're not a corporation, they're not running for profit, but any profitable entity has to consider their earnings growth rate which for many companies, especially larger comp- developed companies, is the growth rate of the economy. Right.
1: You know, maybe that's so, a maybe that's the solution to our governmental problem. Maybe we should we should, you know, formulate a bill uh, get it to Washington and get it passed that says the government has to run like a business. They have to run for profit. And then good all luck. of a sudden <laughs> and all of a sudden decisions become a lot easier at that point about you know what we do and where we spend money, right? Right, right.
2: Yeah. good <laughs> luck with that one, Lance.
1: Yeah, that won't get very far. <laughs> but it right. would solve so, a lot of problems
2: <laughs> right, right. so so in summary, we're, we're at a point in time here where the markets, I, I think, are a little more divergent than we've seen in a long time as far as expectations. And we as investors have to understand this, this, this tug and this pull mm-hmm. on markets and that they're both not right. They can't be right. So but for a period of time, they can both be right. Right. They so
1: can also both be wrong.
2: They can also both be wrong maybe we'll be somewhere in between. Right. Maybe it'll be worse, maybe it'll be 0% growth. Maybe 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 the equity market is underestimating things. Right now to the to the equity market's point of view, maybe 4 trillion dollar stimulus is here to stay. Maybe inflation will run higher, so maybe 7% earnings growth is doable for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Right there are there are some logical and the way things have been going for the last year or two, we can see there are ways that they can attain that earnings growth. But here's the problem. That means that bond yields have to go higher to reflect that growth. And we are an economy dependent on, forget new debt, paying back our old debt. Right. Right. And that's, that's where the rubber hits the road. You know, again, just think about what happens to the mortgage market at 5% mortgages. Right. The game's over. Right. And that's a substantial part of our economy. Then you run that same analysis through every industry that's borrowing, and a lot of companies borrow short-term and roll over the debt, hoping that interest rates stay where they are or go lower. But if they go higher, again, that's more interest expense they have to pay and less salary. Well, and, that, and, that, and, let's,
1: go, and let's go back to Jerome Powell's comments about, well, the housing markets, you know, there's high prices, but why are you still buying $40 billion a month in uh, mortgage-backed securities because they can't afford mortgage rates to go up? Because if they go up, that housing bubble that does exist, you know, evaporates very quickly. And, you know, and and just to to equate this, right, uh, just to put a bow on this, so to speak, is that there is no housing inventory shortage. This is a big myth. It's simply a function that there's a lot of people that own houses that haven't come to market yet and put those houses on the market at some point if they start to see housing prices fall, and Mike and I have talked about this previously, we both own houses, and right now we don't really have an incentive to sell, but if we even have an inkling that our our houses are way overpriced, and we start to see the interest rates come up and the number of sales begin to tailor off, we're going to have a real hard think about maybe I better put this house up for sale now because it might be a long time before I get this house priced back again and if I was thinking about moving in a year or two maybe I better sell now. All of a sudden that inventory will rush to market to get there and if you don't believe me, go look at a a chart of housing inventories from 2005 to 2007. It's exactly what happened. You had no inventory and then you had more inventory. You knew what to deal with as interest rates were starting to rise. So that's that's the the risk to all of this that people mistake is that those things change very quickly and they change if interest rates go up.
2: And keep in mind, there's a lot of boomers out there that are still in the houses. They raise their kids in there and the kids have flown a coop. And they well, don't need it. They well, need except for it the
1: 53% that have their kids living back at home
2: again, of course. <laughs> right. My doors get locked once the last one leaves the house.
1: <laughs> yeah, there is no coming back. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate your time today. All right. That yep. wraps up the show. Get my website. Michael's article on the website now. You can actually go through the whole analysis uh, with him on the website at realinvestmentadvice.com. Also, of course, while you're there, click on the link to the latest newsletter. And, of course, you can see our live stream of the show every day at our YouTube channel, all those right there on the website, can't miss them right there in front of you. Simply go to realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. Get daily
0: investment news you can use, delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the real investment report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.